Hello and welcome to the ALC Par African Radio's discussion program. The discussion program brings together experts to reflect on a variety of current security issues facing Africa at local, national and international levels. Hello, I'm Desmond Davies. And in today's program we have Chelsea Cohen from South Africa, Gorata Chipete from Botswana, Okeje Omowo from Togo, and Raisa Zungrana from Burkina Faso. They are all mem- uh, members of the 2022 uh, Women Fellows Cohort of the ALC. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, elections in this program because since the 1990s, uh, we had this wave of democratization in Africa where everyone thought that things would be better. But we've seen governments and countries backsliding. So how do you yourself, uh, Chelsea, view the, the changes in the democratic process in Africa right now? Because after the 1990s, there was this wave of democratic uh, regimes all over the continent. Well, there, there seems to be having a lot more problem now. So how, how do you yourself see the, this change? Thanks, Desmond, for raising that question. Um, to be very frank with you, I think since the wave of democracy, there's been some decline in the way people view elections and what they're hoping to get out of elections. So coming from South Africa, I mean, in 1994, that was SA's first non-racial democratic elections. And historically, because of the divide, we often found that people, even though it was the new democratic state, would vote for their racial elections. And that's, you can see how that's kind of problematic because you're not focusing on policies anymore. You were just focusing on who you identify with as the leader at that time. Gradually, it's become more um, party orientated as well as policy and manifesto orientated, which is a much better position to be in. I do find it concerning that in 2022, not many people want to continue voting. So I, I think that's a bit of a, a problem we need to address. I see. Okay, Gorata, I mean, you are from Botswana, where, whereby uh, throughout the uh, dictatorships, Botswana was having regular elections and change of government. I mean, uh, what's the situation now there in Botswana? That's right, Desmond. As you know, Botswana is perceived or regarded as a shiny example of democracy. It is true. Since we gained independence in 1966, we have been able to conduct free and fair elections. But however, there's only been one party in power. That's the Botswana Democratic Party. It has been ruling since 1966. And I think that even though there's room for change um, in regards to how we conduct elections, I still feel like we have been able to, for so long, hold very fair and free elections. So the only thing that I would say I have a problem with within our electoral system is um, the system that we use. So we use a system called 
first past the post. So essentially, when we conduct elections, we have members of parliament in different constituencies. So whoever wins the majority of the votes then is elected to yes. represent that constituency. The problem with that, however, is that we have people who are chairs or presidents of different parties. So we have the Botswana Democratic Party. We have the UDC, which is like the umbrella for democratic change, which is a coalition of opposition parties. So now the problem is when we don't have um, direct elections for presidency, so the president of the ruling party, the BDP, does not get elected. It depends on the number of constituencies that he wins, mm. which is a little bit problematic. But over and beyond that, I think things like ensuring that um, all parties receive funding and there's a little bit more of transparency in terms of ensuring that like everyone has equal access to the media and the media can equally report on their but, manifestos. But, but how effective are opposition parties in Botswana anyway? I, I wouldn't say it is effective because obviously it's a coalition of different parties and there's like a clash of, of, of egos and leaders within that party. So the reason why they're unable to topple, not topple, let me not use the word topple, the reason why they're unable to win, to win elections over the BDP is primarily because they're so disorganized and therefore there isn't like a collective voice or a collective front that they present whenever we go for elections. Yeah. Well, Keji, uh, Gorata has just spoken about the, uh, the, the BDP being in power since 1966. In Togo, we've had the Ayadema family since he staged the coup, was it in 1963? The, the first coup in 67. Yes, mm -hmm. and then the father died, and now the son is uh, the president. How do you yourself see that arrangement in Togo? Um, I think it's very unfortunate because um, there are a lot of actions that point to just very kind of opaque electoral processes. Um, and it's a shame that, you know, in the context of democracy and modernity, that the people's voices can't really be heard. Um, in 2017 and 2018, there were huge protests when um, constitutional changes occurred or were approved. Um, and this was kind of in preparation of, you know, the 2020 elections yes. where um, our... Falling Asingbe was granted a fourth um, presidential victory, so a fourth fifth-year term. And so as the Constitution currently stands, he will be able to stay in power until 2030. Um, you know, when I think about my elder family members, the fact that my grandma in 1935 saw independence and then has yes. known one family in power, more or less, I think that's, that's pretty wild. But it's rather ironic that uh, it was in Togo that the uh, AU came up with this uh, to try and regulate politics and governance in Africa. Isn't it strange then that in Togo, where African countries have been told to stick to the, 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 the constitution, you have all these changes in favor of uh, uh, Faure? Definitely. Um, but then I think even when you think about like the historical coups um, in West Africa, Togo was one of the first ones. Yeah. So I think symbolically it's a place where a lot of historical events, and it's kind of set the tone for a lot of the region. 
Um, it's also a place where we've seen, you know, the AU sanction and ECOWAS and so on. Yes. Um, however, that has been proven to be quite inefficient because on paper, um, everything happening is somewhat legal. You know, you have external bodies that are are um, co-signing these elections and saying that that it, it the numbers add up. Um, but in reality, it would be very difficult for them to. Yes, Raisa, Burkina Faso, everyone knows Thomas Sankara. He did well for three years until he was overthrown by his colleague, Blaise Compaore. How do you see the whole situation from Sankara uh, to the removal of Blaise Compaore a few years ago? I mean, how are the Burkinabe responding to these changes? The majority of Burkinabe pop uh, population uh, have been sad and is still uh, sad because of Sankara, uh, Sankara's death. Um, even if it hasn't been said officially that it was Blaise Compare that killed him, uh, a lot of people uh, keep saying that. Yes, but you see, uh, Blaise Compare has been praised all over the world, revolutionary, but he was only there for three years. Do you think he could have become like these other African soldiers who then became dictators or then uh, go into uh, went into politics and become even worse leaders? They were just there for three years, so everyone's praising him. Are you sure he would have stayed as a revolutionary? Burkina Faso people um, were really happy for having a president such as Thomas Sankara. It, he has been a really good president uh, and during his mandate is uh, stay at the power. He has just stay for, stayed uh, there for three years. Three years, yes. But he did really well uh, with him. The population, the, the, the country reached the self-sufficiency and after him, the power have been held by uh, Blaise Compaore. I grew up, I grew up uh, in Burkina Faso knowing just one president. Blaise Compaore. Yes, yeah. and the reason why he left the power was uh, because he was trying to change the constitution. And um, there have been an insurgency, uh, a, revol a huge revolution against him. Um, and our population was thinking that after him, there could be a real change. Um, but unfortunately, um, we noticed that it was the same people from the same uh, party, main party, that was CDP, Blaise Party. They removed just the name of the party and became MPP mm, and yes. took the power. And there were still the same problem that we, we uh, were going through uh, in, the, in the country. So coming to the fact that elections, elections in my country especially, um, have been known as free and fair, but officially, but it's not, it was not and it's still not the case because of uh, the politics, the political party uh, used to influence people, yes. mostly the rural people, uh, by giving them food and money in order to corrupt them to vote. And then in my country, uh, there is just 10% of the population that's voting. And 
uh, in this, those 10%, it's about 80% of the rural population. Yeah. So those people that don't know why uh, the president should be there and what he is he supposed to do for the population. And uh, we have a, a president that don't respond to the needs of the population, unfortunately. And uh, we, have to, we have to deal with it. Yes. Uh, Chelsea, uh, South Africa makes a hue and cry about its democratic process. Uh, the ANC has been passed since the end of apartheid. Uh, when do you see it losing an, an election or a new party taken over? Or is, or is the ANC there for another 10, 20, maybe 30 years? I wouldn't want to give it a time, to be honest with you, Desmond, but there is like competition coming up with the EFF solely because they have tapped into the, the youth and there's a large majority of us that are unemployed, that are in South Africa, that are looking for guidance on jobs. And the ANC keeps every year telling us, we're going to supply you guys with jobs, we're doing this, there's partnerships that are happening and it doesn't happen. So you also are starting to see more aggression and confusion in the youth. And the question, though, is who is actually keeping ANC in power? Because there's more young people than the older generation. And I, I hate to think that, you know, it's solely just the older generation that's keeping the votes in, because that's impossible. Yeah, but the ANC is not delivering for young people, young South Africans. And they're now using foreign, African, foreign Africans as a scapegoat because the ANC is using, is using foreign Africans as a diversion from not delivering for the young South Africans. Isn't that the case? I think the case is that there's misinformation and not enough communication between what is actually happening on the ground and how the ANC is actually dealing with it. So you find a lot of people within the townships are starting to take matters into their own hands and we have a lot of vigilantes going on. Vigilante and, justice. Yes, and they wrong. are attacking foreigners. Yes. And it's unfortunate because we also have um, the ANC coming up saying we condemn xenophobia, we condemn Afrophobia, but there's nothing happening on the ground. And, you know, between not having enough resources, the shared resources, not enough land, the way people are living, the lack of service delivery, it's just created like a bubble of confusion and violence and people are starting to act out on each other. And, you know, these kind of matters that are arising are little gaps for other political parties to start coming in and manipulating the situation. And like most recently, there's a new party that's come up and they're exploiting the fact that xenophobia is a thing in South Africa. And so it's yes. now become the manifesto of, oh, foreigners are coming in to take your jobs, but we're going to help you get your jobs. So it's now people, it's normal how it's supposed to be where it's about policies, politics, and what we're going to do for the people. But how best can we manipulate a situation to be represented? Well, I mean, that's a very good point you've made. You see, the leaders have conveniently failed to tell South Africans that, look, when we were on the apartheid, the whole of Africa gave us refuge. There were, there were hundreds of thousands of South African refugees in every African country, and no one uh, took action against them. Why, doesn't, why don't the leaders at least explain that to say that 
These people are brothers. They made sacrifices for us to, to, to get rid of this odious regime that, is, that was apartheid. You know, this is the thing. It brings me back to that point of communication. Yes. I feel like leadership in South Africa and Africa do not communicate with the rest of us. They will tell us what we need to know at a specific time for their benefits. And it's that's the main problem, actually, because now everyone is starting to think, well, okay, you're either condoning this type of behavior or you're not going to do anything about it. So it just continues. So you have little pockets of governance where people are just taking matters into their own hand. And I think people also don't understand the value of elections because then we're just letting everything slide because as much as I can vote for you, I should equally have that right to take you out. Yes. Well, I'm a, Gorata, that's a good point because you see, uh, on the dictatorships, you never have these problems, a one-party state in terms of the violence that we've seen here in Kenya in 2007 and uh, Cote d'Ivoire in 2010. So do you think that uh, the dictator should remain in power and control the people? No, 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 no. I am anti-dictators primarily because, first of all, they act out of law, so they believe that they are above the the law. So there is no checks and balances, accountability or observation of the rule of the law. That's why I'm anti-dictators. I am, however, for democratic systems, primarily because I feel like you're given a chance to vote a person into power whom you believe that they are going to serve your interest. I mean, during the campaigning season, they usually present their manifestos and you're given a chance to vote a person whom you feel like their manifestos address the social and economic problems that you are facing. And I feel like that's why um, countries like Botswana... (laughs) Countries like Botswana continue to thrive both socially, culturally, and economically. And also, even in terms of preserving peace, I feel like democratic systems are very pivotal in ensuring the attainment of peace and development. So, I am anti dictatorship. Uh, yes, uh, Wokeji, I mean, since the return of democracy, I think 16 countries have attempted or tried or manipulated the constitution. And of the uh, 50 worst countries that have had elections in the world. Africa is in the majority on on that list. I mean, so how do you see the the democratic process moving forward in, in, in Africa, generally speaking? I think that African leaders need to want better for themselves and for their people. Um, there are a lot of dictatorships all over the world, in the Middle East, in Asia, um, or pseudo-dictatorships. But, you know, there's high homeownership rates, there's development, people have opportunity. The fact that, you know, most of the African continent is facing a youth bulge, so most of the continent is under 18 years old, those people all want to self-actualize, to have children, all want opportunity. Um, Togo is the 10th poorest country in the world. Um, every family, every, you know, in the street, in the media, you hear it all the time. You have people who finish university and then can't be absorbed into the job market. So what must they do? They either migrate nearby if they can, or if they're a little bit more fortunate, they go abroad. Um, that means there's immense brain drains. And this is the same phenomenon all over the continent. That's not normal. And that's not okay. Most African people abroad in Europe in the US don't want to live there because they're facing xenophobia and racism and and 
structural violence in 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 another kind of way. So why can't people just stay in their countries where they want to live and self-actualize? Um, why can't our communities, our cultures, why can't social infrastructure um, be set up in a way to push people forward? So I definitely believe that it's a leadership problem um, because the same patterns can be seen all across the continent. Um, it's not normal that so much of the youth is constantly looking for opportunity elsewhere on such a big continent with so much natural resources, uh, where the rest of the world is so, you know, excited to come and to settle constantly, historically. Um, so these leaders just need to do better. It's in their interest for our economies to be stronger, for our culture and for just our influence to to stronger so I don't really understand their thought process exactly right sir. because I mean Africa's got all the wealth why do leaders when they get to power they just cling to their own ethnic group and exclude the rest of society that does not help to have national unity in building national unity I completely agree with you Africans don't need to be focused on the ethnic groups that's what uh, make us uh, go through a lot of conflict, ethnic conflicts. And that's not for our advantage. We can't be African fighting against racism or saying to uh, European or American countries to stop racism. While in Africa, we, uh, we prone ethnic and ethnic groups. And one ethnic group uh, in a country when it's a ma the main ethnic group can hold the power for for a long time, and that's not fair. Even a minority a minority ethnic group should have the chance to pretend to be once a president or a senator of uh, in in his country. Um, that that ethnic group. Uh, extrapolated in the national level yes. bring xenophobia. That's the, that was the case we have seen in Ivory Coast in 2010 when Alassane Draman Ouattara uh, uh, raised and pretend to, uh, to the presidency. They said he's not Ivorian just because he has families that from Burkina, from Burkina but he have, he have been born there yes. and he have the nationality. Why can't he pretend to, to, to the presidency? And then it brought a conflict between Burkinabe and Ivorian in Ivory Coast, and there were a lot of Burkinabe that have been killed. Uh, Gorata, why do politicians scramble so much for power in Africa? Because from my point of view, I believe that that's the best, that's the main avenue for individual wealth accumulation in Africa, isn't it? So they use politics to, to the gain uh, wealth. I totally agree. Unfortunately, we have leaders who are greedy, who are self-centered, who often run for power, not necessarily because they want to serve their people, but primarily because they want to gain wealth. I find it very problematic because many a times you find people being disadvantaged or resources being mishandled by people who are in power who are supposed to be saving the people. And unfortunately, it's a problem that's been persisting for such a long time. And I don't think 
we are going to be able to solve that in the near future. And I really don't know what we can do to solve such a problem because, I mean, when a person um, present their manifestos, we often want to believe in them and we want to believe that, okay, this person is going into power and they're going to serve my interest. We can never know until they win elections and then when they get there, they act totally different. Well, Chelsea, we saw it in South Africa when... Jacob Zuma allowed the Guptas to come and rip off uh, South Africa. And uh, the other day, he had supporters demonstrating in favor of him when he was supposed to attend court. What's wrong with the South Africans then? You know, that incident was a, a very complex incident because... Which one? You mean the demonstrations? Yes, the, the demonstrations, the which, ones that started in Durban. Which were reported as in support of him. They initially started off that way. Yes. And so there is, because of the ethnic bond that was Jacob Zuma being Zulu, and the Zulus also felt that that is a person we identify with, so they did initially stick up to him. But it's kind of snowballed into a bigger situation where because of the factors of COVID happening and just other people that are also once again unemployed and they found they found the opportunity to participate in that that riot. So it kind of escalated. So but do you think, uh, Wokeji, that uh, there's a need for constitution to be rewritten to, inv- to include all of these factors that uh, uh, the ethnic factors, the uh, financial factors, the dictatorial factors. I mean, do you think that the constitution that were written in the beginning were not uh, convenient for, 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 for an African country that is African countries that are multi-ethnic, multi-what have you? I mean, potentially, um, to be perfectly transparent, I'm not the most well-versed on African constitutions. So maybe this is already the case, but from my understanding, a lot of African institutions, structures, legal texts are inherited from our colonial legacies. Um, it's a lot of copying and pasting. So indeed, maybe something that was functioning in one context simply does not fit the reality of our cultures. And so they need to be updated to encompass um, all of those layers. However, um, the the little bit of power our constitutions do hold are constantly maneuvered um, in the interest of very specific people. So who's to say that if we created the most inclusive of constitutions, you know, it still wouldn't be hijacked um, in the name of, of maintaining power? So how do we create checks and balances? How do we honestly just have a fu- like a functioning situation where people understand you come in you do your two terms or your three terms and you leave that's what happens everywhere else in the world so why is it such a struggle for us well um garota i think that's down to the african culture i mean before the colonialists came it was the chiefs that had all these executive powers they handed out largesse and that's what's still happening now in africa it's the executive that has all the power in africa so how will that change when there's also a cultural an inbuilt cultural thing to the whole thing. It's quite a difficult phenomenon to analyze. Even in Botswana, we have the House of Chiefs. We also have a parliament. 
So parliament is supposed to make laws and the chiefs are supposed to guide them and make sure that the laws that they make are in harmony with our cultural norms. So I think that it becomes really difficult to understand how we can ensure that political leaders um, sort of like respect the constitution because like what KJ said, in terms of enforcing the laws, they are the ones who draft these laws. Even at a point where we create an inclusive constitution that in that uh, seeks to enforce laws, we still are not sure or yeah, we still are not sure if these leaders are going to abide by the laws because at the end of the day, they, they draft them, they're supposed to implement them. If they break them, who's going to take them to prison or who's going to uh, ensure that they go through the criminal justice system? No uh, no one. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, Chelsea, how does the, uh, the South African culture impinge on the democratic process? Well, you, you have a very strong cultural uh, situation in, in South Africa, does that actually affect the politics? The Zulus, the Kosas, the, the, the people from Transkaya, they've all got their chiefs and, and, and people listen to what they're saying rather than the president, isn't it? To an extent, um, South Africa does try to be very secular when it comes to politics and I think that's very important because I've seen when ethnicity and culture gets involved, it becomes very complicated. But South Africa tries to be very inclusive. So it taps into the traditional leaders, the local levels, all to get a very good bottom-up approach, especially when it comes to developing legislation or policies. But I don't think, as, as politicians... Even if you had to come up with any form of law or idea you have for South Africa, it would have to go through the various councils to yes. get yeah to get all the way to the bottom. And I that I think is very important because then it's not an imposition of this is the way we're going to run the country or we're bringing in this law, and that's what it's going to be like. So there is a there is some line of communication, but it's also not that wide because there are people in the remote areas that have no idea what's going on with the rest of the country when it comes to exactly. politicians, yeah. Uh, Raisa, is that the same case in, uh, in Burkina Faso? I mean, does culture really play an important role in, in, in politics there or it doesn't? So as in many uh, African countries, culture does influence politics um, in for example, in my country, uh, we have a main chief, that's the Mogonaba. And when there is a president, he has to go uh, and show his allegiance to the Mogonaba. And also, uh, during conflicts, Mogonaba has a huge voice that could contribute to resolve uh, conflicts, especially between ethnic groups or in the a conflict uh, that emerged in the, in the society. But um, unfortunately, um, we are going through terrorism um, and those uh, outstanding leaders coming from our, uh, our cultures have not, have not been yet uh, able to, to help us to uh, manage this conflict. If not, they have a huge voice um, um, in the country, even if so there is two type of power that I are cohabiting the culture the cultural power and the 
the normal power. Chelsea, I mean, the South Africans have spoken highly of the constitution. I mean, is it really working? I mean, is it representing disparate groups in society in South Africa? I would like to say yes. I would. Uh, the only issue is there is one group within South Africa that have recently raised concerns that the constitution doesn't cover them, and that is the Khoisan Bantu group. Yes. Yes, and I mean, for them not to be covered was actually very concerning for all of us because I think we always take for granted that it's a constitution, it's just catered for everyone, but it didn't work as well as we thought for them. So I think... The process now is trying to get their opinions and their beliefs and their culture inserted into the the constitution. But in the large grand scheme of things, it it does work for everyone. It really does. And I think what's also important in South Africa is that we're taught from young about the constitution and what it does for you. So you can challenge it. And I think that's a very small percentage in Africa where you can challenge um, the president through your constitution. Yes. Uh, Gorata, are you happy with the state of nation building in Botswana and uh, economic development? Because that's what African countries were hoping for at independence. What stage are you at in nation building and uh, economic uh, transformation? Um, I would say that it is okay. I wouldn't say I'm happy. I wouldn't say it's bad. So I'm currently um, undergoing a process called Constitution Amendment, and the president, not the president, but the government has uh, invited members of the public to flag out um, a, a lot of clauses in the Constitution that they are not okay with uh, so that they can be reviewed. So the Constitution is under review at the moment. In terms of national building and economic development, I think there is a lot that can be done. I mean, all the people that I graduated with in 2019, I think only two of them are working. There is high employment rates in Botswana. They, um, the economy is stagnating for some reason. We are in debt. It feels more like the... Uh, our government is not making money, but it's also not spending on us, so we mm -hmm. don't know where the money is going. I wouldn't say I'm happy, entirely happy with the economic development. I feel like, especially over the past decade, we have been stagnating in terms of economic um, development and economic growth. But in terms of nation building, we are progressing. We're a very slow and conservative country, only 2 million people. Even in terms of <laughs> um, population growth, we're still... Um, like stagnating, but the situation is not bad. It's really just okay. It could be better. Yes, and Wokeji, the simple question, uh, how's, what's the state of nation building and economic development in Togo after all these years of uh, independence? So I'd say recently, um, I'm talking about in the last two years or so, um, there have been some economic advancements um, that are quite tangible. So, for example, you know, there's a huge port that um, it, it's one of the largest, it's one of the deepest seaports in West Africa. Um, so our kind of competitive advantage would be to be a hub, a regional hub, kind of like a Singapore, because in terms of natural resources, we're not very, very doted. Um, you know, mobile money, internet, right now there's Google that 
pulled a cable from uh, Northern Africa to Cape Town and it's passing via Togo. It's supposed to bring a lot of um, kind of internet access. There's a huge um, solar panel grid that is the biggest one in West Africa is also based in Togo. So there are little things that we are seeing. And in theory, these would be the building blocks for greater development. Um, but to echo what Harata said in terms of you know, real terms, when you ask most young people, there's so many people who have degrees that then can't be absorbed into the work market um, and so on and so forth. And this is the story of multiple generations. So there is still a very, very long way to go, but at least there is a little bit of progress that is actually tangible. It's not just some theoretical law that, you know, we see put in place. The, the, the same question to uh, Rice. After six, more than 60 years of independence, uh, Burkina Faso, uh, what's the state of nation building uh, and, and economic development in Burkina Faso? I would like to be uh, optimistic uh, that there will be a lot of change coming. But um, from my own uh, point of view, since the independence to, to now, there is not be a lot of change uh, concerning uh, the economic uh, area and uh, the nation building hasn't really uh, influenced the economic even if there is there have been a lot of progress um, it's not a lot some progress um, uh, with how to uh, f uh, with figuring mixing the modernity and the technology and that helped a lot the country, but there is still some gaps that need to uh, be filled, yes. to be filled yes, okay. in order to mm. uh, reach a real economic progress and the development. And Chelsea, uh, of course, the ANC inherited more or less modern state with infrastructure and uh, legal system and all that sort of thing. What is the state now after 22 years mm. of, of uh, the ANC taking over? Uh, What's the state then of the nation building and uh, economic development? In over two decades, it's slow. It is slow. It is slow. Yes. It is. It should be a lot more advanced and bigger for that amount of years, especially that there was some form of infrastructure exactly. already in place. Exactly. I think the challenge also is that we're focusing on the same sectors and we're not expanding more into other forms of development and so there's places that are lagging and you know it's creating a very unequal divide so you'd find that you know homes are adjacent to townships that have been there from apartheid and so those areas are not developing and they should be by now after all this time the other sectors are, are doing well so the transport section um finance, I mean, technology, all of that is coming in, but then it's only serving a small percentage of the population. And uh, do you, um, Chelsea, are you positive about the uh, electoral process in Africa or South Africa in the future? Or how, how do you yourself view it? I am one of the many people that are starting to doubt the process. And it's also because... I think a lot of things need to ch be changed and challenged. 
I do not also believe in voting for a party and then have someone elected within that party. I think I should be voting for that president myself. My vote should count. Mm. I, within South Africa, I think the issue of designated um, ballot points needs to change as well because I feel like that really manipulates the way elections are being held because I cannot vote because I've moved cities and I have to re-register. That makes no sense in the grand scheme of things because then you know how many people are going to vote in that region. And Garata, do you want to see change in the democratic process in uh, Botswana or are you happy with it? Um, I would like to say I want to see more change. I feel like the ruling party has more power. They have more funding. They control the media. And they are basically always a step ahead of the opposition party. In 2019, we had a huge case where the opposition party was contesting election, citing um, that the ruling party had rigged elections. That was the first case we've ever experienced ever since we gained independence. So it's a start. It is a start. I, I hate to sound pessimistic, but I feel like um, we're heading to our general elections in 2024. And even now, I sense a lot of destabilization in Botswana. And I really want to see change. I feel like the ruling party needs to do better in terms of uh, inclusion of the opposition party. Um, yeah. And Mokeji, after 50 or more years of the uh, Eadema family, is change on the horizon in Togo? Um, like I said previously, I think that for me, it's more about the effects of the leader rather than the leader themselves, uh, who it is, if, you know, the fate of the country is to be ruled by the same family forever. It's unfortunate, but at least do something with the power you have. Don't just hoard. Um, so I want to see more economic development, socio social development um, and specifically the development of indigenous companies and um, influence because right now all the previous advancements I stated are all foreign you know it's a French multinational that's doing a it's the Chinese that are building the port it's the blah 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 that are building whoever and so it's let's give a chance to even if it's just regional people if it's companies from ECOWAS at least that's you know developing regional um kind of solidarity um rather than it to be from you know the colonial legacy once more um or for it to be of such an extractive nature of a relationship so i do hope to see change and Raisa, do you see anything positive any positive change coming with the uh the military promising all sorts of things. I mean, are you, are you confident that uh, you move forward now? We are really confused. We don't project ourselves in the future um, with a real big progress, even if we hope. Um, because of uh, we really wanted a, a break between the past uh, compounded regime yes. and go forward. Um, we had a coup d'etat. And we were really hoping, we, were, we had a finger crossed to, to hope uh, gain a real changement, but it didn't come. And it's, it's not, we don't think it will, it will come with uh, this governance, but we, we hope in the future to have a, a really uh, democratic 
even the democracy we don't know if the democracy is adapted to our context so we we just hope to have uh, a, the government that will fit with the country and help us to go forward with a real development with, for our country Chelsea Cohen from South Africa Grata Chipeti from Botswana Raisa Zungara from Burkina Faso and uh, Wakeje Homo all 2022 Women Fellows at the LC. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the discussion program on the ALC Pan-African Radio. For this and other programs, please visit our website at alcafricanradio.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Radio ALC and on Facebook at ALC Radio numeral number one. For feedback on this and other programs, please send an email to info at africanradio.com.